Yes, here we are, Robcast. This one is episode 322, and it's called There Are No Tangents. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are no tangents. Uh, this is a really exciting day for me. It's a, what is it, a Wednesday afternoon? But we just released my new audiobook. And my new audiobook is called Handling Your Fire. Passion, Burnout, Routines, and Resilience. Yes. I have noticed over the years how many people want to talk about these four words. Passion, burnout, routines, and resilience. Because the thing that you love can also feel like it's going to kill you. Sound familiar? It's like there's this thing that like gets you up in the morning. It's like, yeah, this is what I'm, this is the gift I'm here to give. This is the thing I'm here to do. And yet you can easily end up in a conflicted relationship with it. Like, God, it's, it can be so all consuming. So you have to like figure out how to hold it or handle it properly. And the number of people I have met who refer to this thing within them as fire, I think it's fascinating. So you're like, you're handling this fire. There's a heat there. It's hot. It's a source of energy, but it also, obviously, it can burn. So I've been thinking about this, obviously, for decades, but I've never done anything specifically on it. So a while ago, I started thinking, what would I, what would I do about that? What would I say about that? And um, put it all together. So this new audiobook is six hours long. <laughs> it's even got a hidden track. Like, um, remember with CDs, how you'd get a CD, and so once in a while, there'd be all this space at the end. You'd be like, wait, that song can't be 12 minutes. And you find out, oh, they hid a song way at the end. So, uh, yeah, it's over six hours, and it's me doing my best to capture what I've learned about burnout. There was this thing that happened in... Uh, what year was it? 2008. I just crashed. Just massive burnout. And I remember we, uh, I didn't know if I would do what I do again. I mean, it was that sort of like, maybe it's just over. Okay. It's been a good ride. Maybe it's done. Maybe we're done. And we sold our house and some people let us live in this cottage that they had. And so I went off the grid for I didn't do what I do for like four months. I was just, I was a shell of a man. I i would watch episodes of The Wire, that HBO show. I would watch television in the morning. <laughs> that's thats how cooked I was. And uh, so I remember we didn't know where we were going to live, but we had sold the house we were living in, and we gave away tons of stuff. So we just had a few possessions. We just had a like maybe a room full of stuff if you packed it all in. So we got one of those cubes where they put it in the driveway and you just put all your stuff in the cube and then they take the cube away and they put it in a room. They put it in storage somewhere. It's like all your, most of your earthly possessions are like in this box in the driveway and then it goes away. And we went and lived in this other place and we didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know where the kids were going to go to school. I, I, I assumed at some point, hopefully I would go back and keep doing what I was doing, but I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, that was rough. That was, 
that was really rough. So uh, this new audiobook, Handling Your Fire. I like that. I like that title. It, uh, it comes out of my own experiences of finding something to do that, that I love, but then also on multiple occasions feeling like, God, can I even survive this? How do you even, how do you do this? How do you do this long term? Uh, what's the long play? How do you do this so that you're not just getting by, you're not just surviving, but like years from now you have more energy, more passion. And I have a specific way of understanding passion. So there's a good of that six hours, there's at least a good hour in there, which is me taking you through how I understand passion. Because a lot of people, it's all about drama. It's all, it's all about um, almost like an emotional intensity. When they say passion, it's, it's something that can't be sustained. It's just a momentary feeling and then it passes and there's almost like the letdown. That's not what I mean. By passion, I'm referring to something else. So I take you into an, an alternate understanding of passion because once you see passion that way, uh, oh, I also do this whole thing on the thread and the setup, um, which, which to me is how, how you do what you do and be who you are for a long time, and it just keeps getting better. No one actually ever told me that. I don't remember anybody telling me, oh, it gets really good later. It gets way better. Uh, I, don't, I don't also don't remember, this is why I talk about wisdom so much. I also don't remember somebody saying, oh, wisdom is actually the thing. Yeah, wisdom is where it's at. Yeah, not like how smart you are, how much you know, but wisdom, which is like a lived understanding of the... I, was, I, I think of it like an understanding of the playing field. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, today we release it, and God, it's so much fun to make something and put it out there, and... I hope it helps. I hope it gives you language. Uh, I hope it gives you a way to talk uh, about who you are and what you do with the, with the people around you that you talk about these things with. I hope it gives you... Well, honestly, I hope, I hope this new audiobook gives you hope, um, especially if you're in some situation that just isn't working. Um, I, I spend at least the first couple hours just giving you a way to think about what do you do when... Your, your, the arrangement as it is doesn't work. How do you think about that? Is there some, and how do you think about who you are over the long arc of your life in relation to however your life is currently set up? And that's actually, you, know, you got to separate this, the, the thread and the setup. So I take a while and take you through all that. Man, if I keep talking, <laughs> I'm going to, I'll just right now, I'll end up talking and talking through the whole thing right now. But it's way, it's, it goes on for a long time. And I'm so happy. Have I mentioned that? How happy I'm in that it's, that it's available. So there, there's that. Uh, because there are no tangents, right? <laughs> there's a phrase that helps me. I've been using it over the past few years. Um, I remember my friend Glenn was going through a just brutal battle with cancer that came and went and came and... and I, I, we thought we might lose him, and that would have just been, I mean, it was just gut-wrenching. But I would say to him, I'm carrying you around in my heart. Yeah. 
And I had said that phrase off and on over the years to people, but I remember with my friend Glenn, this was a number of years ago, somehow it, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that feels right. That's the, it's, it was almost like the phrase that was big enough to name uh, what it was like to watch my friend go through this battle. So uh, try this phrase, because think about right now. Uh, I'm carrying Ukraine. I bet you are too. I'm carrying Ukraine around in my heart. Uh, I'm carrying my sadness about certain people, certain expectations, certain assumptions, certain relationships, all, uh, sadness, disappointment. I'm carrying some of that around in my heart. Uh, my, my daughter, Violet, and I, I take her to school in the morning. Oh, man. She, it is the best. We get in the car, and we, uh, she immediately hooks her phone to the Bluetooth stereo in my car, and she has these playlists. Like, I think each month is a new playlist, but there's a new batch of songs that come in. And uh, she just recently discovered The Cure, um... The other day, we got in the car, and she played The Cure um, in between days. Yesterday, I felt so. Oh, remember that? Oh, it's so great. She, um, she discovered The Smiths recently. So she's like, what's the deal with Morrissey? <laughs> That's what we discussed on the way to school. I'll tell you what we were doing this week. This week was a Mazzy Star. Remember Mazzy Star, Fade Into You? Oh, just gorgeous music. Um, a couple days ago, oh, you're going to love this. The Velvet Underground. This young woman is 12, and she found The Velvet Underground. Uh, what was this morning? Uh, Nirvana, Something in the Way. I mean, this is, oh, this is the best. A lot of Frank Ocean, a lot of Tyler, the Creator, um, a lot of Gracie Abrams, who's just amazing. Um, Pink Pantheress. I mean, let's go down the list, but the other day, we get in the car, and uh, the cure is playing, and she says, without, uh, she's not asking this question in relation to the music, but you could see when I tell you what the question was, how it all was just perfect for me. We're going down the road, the cure is playing, and she says, Dad, what's the difference between nostalgia and deja vu? <laughs> how? Great is that question. What's the difference between nostalgia and deja vu? But isn't that perfect? Like the cure is playing in the background. I mean, you can't even, oh, I mean, you couldn't have scripted. That's so beautiful. Uh, by the way, I asked, see, what would you have said, by the way, to that question? Here's what I said. I said, the difference between nostalgia and deja vu is nostalgia is your fond recollection and reflection on something that you experienced, deja vu is the feeling of having experienced something before in the present that you haven't. But that's not like, <laughs> I just bungled. I said, literally said something like that. Like it sounded so precise, but it kind of made no sense. Even saying it to you now, I'm like, I kind of said something. I'm like bungling my bungling of it. <laughs> Deja vu is like, wait, did this happen before? Nostalgia is, this happened. 
Isn't that the best? Oh, great. I'm carrying these moments with her around in my heart. It's just so great. Wednesday, school's out early. That was this afternoon. So we go, uh, we go to Chipotle and uh, sit outside. You know what I'm saying? We do it right. Yeah, we went to a vintage clothing store after that. Come on. I mean, just, you're only 12 once, right? And the boys are older. So, like, I, we did all, I, I did this a decade ago with them. Um, and all that happens with the passing of a decade is you're just, I'm just that much more aware of this right here is the only, it's where all the action is. Yeah. If, if, you're, uh, if you're present, then it doesn't fly by. If you're here, paying attention, and you're not rushing, and you're not busy, and you're not, oh, it's just crazy. It's not crazy. No, we don't do crazy. What? <laughs> then it doesn't fly by. Then years later, you're not like, oh, I feel like it just blinked and it was... No, you, it, you don't feel like it blinked and it was over because you were there the whole way. Yeah. yeah you, 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 by the way, you can tweak time. You can bend time way more than you realize. Yeah. For so many people, time, time is seen as an absolute. It's just this thing. You try to steal bits of it. You try to sneak a little bit. Nah, you got you to... Gotta, you can also think about time in a completely different way. It's not an absolute. It's, it's bendy, stretchy. It's an illusion, actually. It's something the mind creates to make some sort of sense of the delineation of the manifestation of time and space. But that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> Them is some big words. Uh, yeah. So, by the way, have I already told you that there are no tangents? So, yeah, you carry, carry all this around in your heart because your heart can do it. Your heart's fine with it. Your heart, your heart can carry your kids and Ukraine and all the Russians who are protesting the actions of their government. Oh, man, the way that this conflict is breaking so many hearts and taking lives, you carry all of it around with you. Yeah, yeah the heart can, the heart, the heart is expansive. The heart can carry lots and lots of things at the same time. Yeah. Our son Preston, he used to, in the back house here, there's a small room right off of this room, and it was my son Preston's room. It can barely fit a bed with a little room to walk around it, but it was Preston's room all through, you know, high school, big part of college. And then during COVID, he moved out. Uh, that rocket was launched. But then just recently... Um, his lease was up, and he was going month to month, and then he's finishing school. So then there was some other friends who were going to, but there was like a little period there, and he was like, "Hey, uh, can I?" So he's like, "Can I move? Uh, how about I come back for a little bit?" So for over a year now, that room uh, we put a rug in it and just used it for yoga and stretching and stuff, and it's just like over my right shoulder here. And anytime I'd look in there, I'd be like, "Oh." My boy used to be in that room, and now he's out doing his thing, and I'd have it no other way. But then, a couple weekends ago, he came back. Oh, yeah, totally unexpected. Like, I didn't, yeah. I mean, how great is that? And then, 
he's finishing up his next record. He set up his desk that he has like his recording stuff on right over like I'm pointing to it and turning my head and the mic that way as if that's going to help you <laughs> and he set up his stuff so I'm here um during the day but then in the evening when he's back from school he's been uh working on this album and the other day he didn't go into school school starts later uh, a couple days a week so the other day I came out here and got to work on my writing and I hear him in the other room getting up and then he comes out, hey dad, and he sits down, puts on his headphones and for a good, I don't know, three hours, four hours, the two of us just quietly did our work. <sighs> I'm telling you, I have the biggest dad smile right now. What a lump in the throat. Ooh, mm, mm-mm. So we were just... And then we took a break, got a little food, came back in here, went back to our work. Oh, my word. Yeah. So there's this little window here where he's back for a little bit. I'm carrying that around in my heart as well. I often um, hear a question that people ask about prayer. And for a lot of people, they came from a world where there was a there was a divine being who exists independent and outside of whatever you would call this reality, and then you say things to that divine being. You lob things up, down, over, or something, almost like a like a vending machine. You toss in some quarters. There's different images for it, but I've noticed how many people, that entire construct, that entire way of seeing reality doesn't work anymore. And I often people will say, well, what about prayer. And there's lots and lots of ways you can think about prayer, but but uh, try that one. Caring. Like if you're praying for somebody, you're carrying them around in your heart. Try that one. Yeah. T- by the way, tell this to people. Tell them that you're carrying them around in your heart. It does something. It, it, uh, it, it, it brings you closer. It has this... Uh, God, what's the word for it? A tenderness and a connection. I'm telling you, look somebody in the eyes and tell them you're carrying them around in your heart and notice how your love for them expands. Notice how it draws you together. Um, yeah, at a level of like heart, soul. Yeah, carrying you around in my heart. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the story about uh, driving in Arizona? Did I tell you the story? I w- it was New Year's... Was it New Year's Day 2013? New Year's Day 2014? We were all... Us family, we were in Arizona. And we were driving through Phoenix. And I don't know what it is about Arizona. Is it just because it's so wide open and expansive? I love driving through the desert... I love driving through Phoenix, and it's just got this. Those the mountains are off in the distance, Camelback Mountain. There's, it's got this the sky. There's something about it. But I'm telling you what happens when I get to Arizona. I drive so fast. <laughs> there's something about all that wide open space that I just drive it like I stole it, and uh, I was just hauling down whatever that. What's that? I guess the 10 freeway, and got pulled over for speeding, and they just gave me a ticket like. 
whatever the like ticket, I guess there's just a standard ticket, but I, whatever the standard ticket, I just, I'm choosing right now to tell you that I got an extra ticket uh, somehow. <laughs> and I get, put all these points on my license. And, but I also learned in getting this ticket and trying to pay it and all that, that I could do Arizona traffic school for eight hours online and I could get the points taken off. So we drove back. So I get the ticket. We drive back home to California. And from California, I go on, like like you need me to explain this to you. I go on the interweb and I go into Arizona's thing and I sign up for this class and I do a day in front of my computer doing traffic school and taking these little tests and they rig it so there's no way you can skip. You actually have to be in each question in each section for a particular period of time. And they ask you questions that you have to have read the entire thing. So they're very smart. You have to actually do the whole thing. And I get to uh, the end of it, and I it's taken a day. Like, it is like an eight-hour commitment. And uh, maybe the next day or later that day, I'm talking to a friend of mine on the phone, and I'm telling him, you know what I did? I just spent an entire day in Arizona traffic school to get these points taken off this ticket that I got on New Year's Day, however long ago that was. And I'm talking in my car to my friend, and I'm saying, isn't that amazing that, that like, you could, there's that much to tell you about drive. That's how long it takes just to get the points taken off a whole day, et cetera, et cetera. And we're sort of bemoaning this and my, we're laughing about how much time, I, like a whole day of my life spent just et cetera, et cetera. You can picture. And we're making, we're because la- this friend of mine and I, we, we can find, we can, I mean, we can laugh. We can drag, I'm telling you, we can drag something out for so long. And I'm still talking to them and I get home. And then at that house where we lived, I would like pull ahead and then back. It was a very short section of driveway. I would back my car into the driveway and I'm talking to my friend about spending the day in traffic school. And my friend is saying to me, that's so ridiculous that you would spend all day because you're obviously a good driver. You don't need traffic school. You're a fine driver. And as he says that, I'm laughing and I'm listening to what he says. And I back into the side of our house. As he tells me I'm a good driver, I back into the corner of the garage and dent the bumper and <laughs> Oh God. Speaking of Arizona, I was at my friend Zach's house. Zach lives in Arizona. And he's got this room in his house that's got a couch. I think there's a table, a bookshelf, and then a record player and some nice big speakers. And we're at his house, and we're and he says to me, "Do you know what one of the greatest songs is? The greatest songs ever?" And I was like, "And Zach's a musician. He knows a lot of music, so he's really he's always introducing. You know, he's he's introduced. He's that friend who introduces you to great music. So I was like, "Oh, this will be interesting." And he says, "I'll tell you what's one of the greatest songs ever: Easy Lover by Phil Collins." <laughs> I did not see that coming. Easy Lover by Phil Collins. And he says, check it out. So I sit down on the couch. He pulls the record out of his record collection, puts it on the turntable, 
and turns it up so that Phil Collins in all of his analog glory can pump out of those record player speakers. And I do, as I hear it on that stereo in that room with my friend Zach, think, man, he's right. This is one of the greatest songs ever. <laughs> Maybe that's a good working definition of wisdom. Wisdom is you're less hasty to dismiss things on the front end. Oh, you're you're like more as you live you get you get better at being surprised. You 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 build up the unexpected muscle to where you would just shoot it down before. You're a little more brittle. You're you're a little more stiff. You're a little more that's what I like. That's what I don't like. That's lame. And then as you get older, you've been surprised enough that uh, you've noticed how your, your opinion on the front end, when you actually encountered whatever it is, turned out to be uh, way, way different than you thought it was. There have been so many things that you love now that you appreciate, that you see the beauty and you see the brilliance in, that when you first heard them or heard of them, you're like, I don't know. You were dismissive. You waved it off. You're like, but then it surprised you. Yeah, maybe that's, an, uh, yeah, that's, some, that's something about the wisdom as you get later in the game. So when your friend says, you want to know what one of the best songs ever is, Easy Lover, you're, you do that little grimace, like, What? But you're getting, but that you're getting less of that as time goes on, and more. Oh, huh. I wonder what I'm about to experience. I think I know that song, and then you hear it, and you're like, "Oh, this is uh, you know, this is called beginner's mind." Obviously, uh, otherwise, scholars call it second naivete. It's when you've heard something or read something before, but you hear it or read it again or experience it again with all of the wisdom of the earlier times, but with the newness of beginner's mind. That's, it's like, it's the first, it's the thousandth time, it's the hundredth time, and it's also the first time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the word confidence. I've been thinking about this word recently. Because somebody was talking, who was it, was talking to me about confidence. Why, how do you have confidence? I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't ever even think about confidence. And then it struck me. Oh, I think when a lot of people, this is what I've observed. A lot of people, when they talk about confidence, I think they're talking about the confidence that they can do it. And I realized I don't, if I even to think, because I don't really think about that word ever, but if I were to think about that word, I don't have any confidence that I can do it. Yeah. Does anybody? How would you know? How do you know if you could pull it off? How do you know if it'll be good? How do you know if it'll work? How do you know if anybody will care? How do you know if it'll even be what you thought it might be, which is already taking some of the joy out. Some of the joy is finding out whatever it is, what it's going to be. But I realized, oh, interesting. I don't have any confidence that I can do it. I have all kinds of confidence that I can try. That's... That's the confidence game to be playing right there. Try this. Try this. Stop thinking about confidence as confidence that you can do it. Who knows? 
That's who knows. That's even boring if you already know you can do it. Half the fun is not knowing. Yeah, try this. Try. I have confidence that I can try. Yeah. And then I'll try. And then I have confidence that I can I'll try something else. I'll try again. I mean, try try that and notice. Uh, notice what happens. This this other project that I'm working on right now, um, there are whole sections of it where I'm like, God, I don't know if I can. Uh, what, what can I pull that off? Can that be what I think it? But as soon as I switch to, like a try, <laughs> then we're good. Yeah, yeah. Can you try? Of course, of course you could try. Yeah, that's the confidence. Yeah. By the way, there are no tangents. Do we do we already establish this? Bob Dylan uh, is eighty. Do you realize that Bob Dylan is eighty? New York Times asked him recently. Listen to this question they ask him: How's your health holding up? You seem to be fit as a fiddle. How do you keep mind and body working together in unison? Isn't that a great question? Because he is. That guy's just going strong. They ask him, how do you keep mind and body to working together in unison? And then this is this is Bob Dylan's this is Bob Dylan's response. Oh, that's the big question, isn't it? How does anybody do it? First off, let's just stop right there. A master class by a master. He's asked a question. How do you respond to a question with a question? Only he responds to the question with two questions. How do you keep mind and body working together in unison, Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan's response, well, that's a big question, isn't it? How does anybody do it? And then he says this, your mind and body go hand in hand. There has to be some kind of agreement. By the way, you can't be at war with your body. We all know that, right? Yeah, it's the one you got. Anyway, that's my commentary on Bob Dylan's answer to New York Times question, but he says there has to be some kind of agreement. I like to think of mind as spirit and the body as substance. How you integrate these two, I have no idea. I just try to go on a straight line and stay on it. Stay on the level. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you're looking for this week's quote, if you're looking for that thing to put on the dashboard, the refrigerator on your desk, try that one. I just try to go on a straight line and stay on it. Stay on the level. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like a Bob Dylan lyric, by the way? Here's why that line is so good. It says so much. It's so big. It's so beautiful without <laughs> saying much of anything, right? Right. Notice how, notice how the mind tries to analyze and break that down and actually particularize it and feel and, and understand exactly what it is. It just all falls apart. But you let that like do something, you let that go right to the heart. You carry that one around in your heart. I just try to go on a straight line and stay on it, stay on the level. I love it. <laughs> There are no tangents. How many nuclear bombs do you think there are in the world? Just guess. How many nuclear warheads are there? Now, some are active. Some have been uh, essentially dismantled, retired, etc. But how many warheads do you think there are in the world? Guess. What's the number? And of that number, what percentage do you think of that number are in the possession of the U of U.S. and Russia. What percentage of the world's nuclear weapons are in the possession of the U.S. and Russia combined? 
That's an interesting question because right now this is a thing in the air. Right now there's a there there's a low grade we're carrying this around in our heart, and a low grade existential terror uh, because we have armed conflict and the nation that invaded the other nation, Russia, who invaded Ukraine, has nuclear weapons. So the rest of the world is like, if this thing escalates, who knows? And Putin, the head of Russia, has said all sorts of ominous things about how he will do things the world has never seen. So this is what is in the air. So if you find yourself right now, sadness, anxiety, low-grade fear, sort of an unsettled, oh, here's a word, turbulence. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, somebody, somebody was just talking to me. Who was it? Just last week, a friend of mine was talking about sadness. And was trying to locate. He's like, I'm trying to figure out where it is, where it comes from, or wh- why I have this sadness. And I was saying, who doesn't right now? You'd, you'd have to have people whose antennas don't even work that well are picking up on sadness, let alone if your antenna at all is working. Yeah. You know, so some, sometimes what you are sometimes what you are experiencing is something very real from your own lived history. But sometimes what you are picking up on is something in the air, a very real collective. If thousands and thousands of people around you are experiencing financial stress, how would you not feel that? If uh, you have a rising, like during pandemic, you have a rising death toll. Of course you'll feel that. If right now, which we are in a major, major geopolitical conflict uh, in which lives are being lost, uh, refugees are f- being forced to flee their homes. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, give yourself all kinds of space on this to feel this, to carry this around in your heart, to obviously take really, really good care of yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How many warheads? 13,000 warheads in the world, roughly, right now. General estimate. Pretty accurate, but this seems to be the general agreement. About 13,000 warheads. 90% of those nuclear bombs are in the possession of the U.S. and Russia. The U.S. is about 5,550. Russia is 6,000, has 6,200. U.S., 5,500. Russia, 6,200. So they uh, have about 90% of the 13,000 bombs. What other nations have nuclear bombs? Uh, Only a couple. uh, China has 350. France has 290. You have UK, you have UK, France, Israel, Pakistan, India, China, and North Korea. And that's it. So roughly nine nations have, and uh, the majority of them have actually live tested those weapons. Now, of course, the question is, well, how many nuclear bombs would it take? to, uh, like, blow up the world? Because you would assume it would take... I mean, what's your guess right now? If you're just to guess, how many nuclear bombs would it take to, like, end life as we know it on Earth? Because I assume, for most people, the assumption would be, like, a 
thousands and thousands and thousands. It seems like the Earth, it, um, the general estimate is about a hundred. Because the issue isn't really blowing up the planet. The issue is how much fallout would affect air, would uh, the ash in the air would affect sunlight, which would affect the ability of plants to grow, which would be food source, which would mean starvation. So the real thing isn't like, as you picture, like a planet blowing up like the Death Star in Star Wars. It's more like the effect that the bombs would do when detonated on the Earth's sort of biosphere, which would render life and this planet uninhabitable. General agreement seems to be it's about 100 would do it. So if you're feeling a deep unease about this current moment and what we're in and the and the the nuclear possibilities everything about this has been insane for a really long time. And I assume right now you're thinking wait 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 if 100 will blow up the earth why does the US have 5550? Why does Russia have 6200? This thing actually went into completely insane territory a long time ago. In fact, in 1968, there was the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1968, which was enacted in 1970, which was an agreement um, among the five at the time major countries that had nuclear weapons to limit the ability. The countries that had nuclear weapons got together and signed a treaty to limit other countries from being able to have nuclear weapons, right? Is this not insane? Completely insane. And the country that led the way for the non-proliferation treaty, the country that organized and led the way to get these other countries to agree to this was the United States of America, the only nation that's actually dropped nuclear bombs on real people. So the country that led the way to say only a few countries should get these bombs, the other ones shouldn't be able to get these, that country is the only one that ever has actually used these in war and just caused all sorts of destruction and devastation. Yeah, so this thing that you are feeling, this thing that is in the air, this didn't just happen three weeks ago. This... Uh, this goes way back. This has history. Yeah. This ancient, ancient pattern of stockpiling in an effort to deter future violence has an insanity built into it. Yeah, so that's part of perhaps what you may be feeling, what we're feeling in our bones and our cells and our nervous systems is we're feeling... We're feeling this moment. We're feeling this horrific, barbaric invasion, uh, this unhinged Russian leader named Putin, and this extraordinary violence that's being done that we're seeing on our phones and laptops. But it's also an ancient pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, if you say that you're pro-life, start here. I'm astounded with people who say they're pro-life who, who don't start here. Why in the world do we have 5,550 bombs stocked, stacked up? Why isn't this the starting point? Um, and I, uh, especially a number of years ago, I did uh, a fair bit of work with um, 
essentially an anti-nuclear weapons organization. And um, we tried to raise awareness and, and did some uh, a number of different things. But I was fascinated with the leaders of that group. Um, and I would ask them, like, when you talk about this need for us to eliminate nuclear weapons, what's the other side, <laughs> right? What's the other side to that argument? Yeah, it's but we it is, whew. yeah. So so, I'll say it again. Some of what's in the air right now uh, are decisions that were made a long time ago to stockpile weapons. That it's so dark and it's so tapped in. Now, obviously, you can see what happens is the moment anybody says uh, disarmament, let's get rid of all this. Somebody says. Yeah, but then you're vulnerable. Yeah, but then the but then your enemy. Yeah, but then you. Yeah, yeah, that is the risk. That is the risk of doing the right thing. It always is. By the way, side note. What's interesting about the Jesus story is he's crucified. That's the story. He's crucified. There is no resurrection without first a crucifixion. And. He is tortured and beaten, and the global military superpower of his day hangs him on a cross. But he does not at any point respond to the violence with violence. So at every point when he could retaliate in kind, he doesn't. Because the cross is about the end of the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence... Myth meaning, myth meaning, in this case, not true. The myth of redemptive violence says, you bomb us, we bomb you. That a corresponding act of violence or retribution is how the world is made better. So what you see in the Jesus story is he goes to the cross and is crucified without at any point retaliating and keeping the violence in circulation. So the heart of the story is about how do you make a new world in which violence is no longer in circulation? Well, that's the story of the cross. So what's fascinating is the people who would say they're followers of this Jesus and then participate in the same myth of redemptive violence. Well, we just have to have lots and lots of bombs because we need to be able to bomb them back. We need to deter them from bombing us. That keeps the whole thing in circulation. That, that, that is the power. That is the enduring resonance of the actual story of the cross. As he hangs on the cross, and then his followers tell these stories about him saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He forgives the one who does the violence to him. That's how you make a new world. Yeah, so uh, one of my prayers, one of the things I'm carrying around in my heart is this sense, this turbulence in the air right now about nuclear weapons translates into a whole new generation. And by generation, I don't mean just young people. I mean people who are alive at the same time. It's the ancient understanding of generation isn't an, this generation meaning all the young kids, this generation means all the people who are alive in this time. My hope, my prayer, 
what I'm carrying around in my heart is that this sense, this turbulence of, wait, wait, the nuclear thing is completely insane, actually translates into new awareness, new policies. We have people rise up, especially in positions of power, who are like, hold on, hold on. How, how do we destroy these weapons fast enough? How do, how do we get these off our hands? If you possess these, how is that not already an energy that you don't want to be participating in? If your tax dollars have been spent stockpiling weapons, it would take a hundred of them to end human life, and you've got 5,000 of them. How is that not jamming up the antenna and jacking up the system? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, somebody will talk about, like, if Jesus was here, what do you think he'd talk about? Well, obviously, lots of things. But you have to believe, come on, you have to believe that one of the first things he would go after is, hold on a second, you took your hard-earned money, you gave it to your government, and they stockpile weapons so that you could blow the planet up five, what is it, 50 times more than you need to? So you could blow up 50 planets of this size? What? Yeah, you got, no wonder you got problems. Yeah, no wonder you're feeling something. <sighs> yeah. Man, I didn't I didn't see that one too. That was a bit of a riff right there, huh? That thing. Man, I got ahead of steam and just went with that one. Woo-wee. There are no tangents. You with me on that? My uh, wedding ring started itching my I've been wearing the same wedding ring. It has like waves engraved on it. I'm wearing the same wedding ring since May of 1994. We were married in the 1900s. <laughs> oh, I love that. I was alive in the 1900s. So my wedding ring, it was like, it was, I don't know what it was, it was like itching my, somehow, all of a sudden, like two weeks ago. Um, and so I took it off, I could barely get it off, and I got it off, and I said to Kristen, is it okay if I get a new wedding ring? So I didn't wear it for a couple weeks, which didn't feel right. And I was like, Kristen, that doesn't feel right not to be wearing a wedding ring. She's like, I know that we're together. It's like, I don't, I don't need you to wear I, I'm aware of this relationship. But there's this massive market in our neighborhood on Sundays uh, called Melrose Trading Post. I'm telling you, I, I can't even imagine how many stalls there are of like art, antiques, clothes, candles, music furniture, pottery, there are food trucks, and there are multiple bands, and crystals, and record, I mean, it just goes on, you can, I mean, you can walk for hours in that thing, it's every Sunday, they built like this little temporary city, practically, and uh, so I said to her, can we walk, this is last Sunday, can we walk over to the market, and I'm going to get, I'd like to get a new wedding ring, and I said, I know exactly what I want. I want a super thin one that's a circle, which obviously it's a ring, right? So we go into the market. We just walk along, and this woman has this booth, and I just know, yep. So I say to her, <laughs> I say to her, I'd like a new wedding ring. This lady here, I point to Kristen, she's going to buy me a new wedding ring. Um, I say, I want, what I pictured was a thin ring that was the shape of a circle, but I don't mean like the shape of a circle, like obviously around your finger, but I mean a shape of a circle, like 
the metal itself. Does that make sense? It's like a circle. So I was trying to describe it this lady. I said, I'd like a circle of a circle, a circle of a circle made of a circle. And she knew what I meant. She said, hold on one second. And she like fussed in her little box there and she pulled out the exact ring. I'm holding it right now. And she said, $25. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got a new wedding ring. And uh, honestly, it's like really powerful. I didn't think it would be this powerful. Yeah. It's done so I keep showing it to Kristen. Like, have you checked out my new wedding ring? And then Violet was doing her nails and did one of my nails uh, in like a deep red. So I have this new thin circle made of circle wedding ring. And I have a red fingernail. And it just feels right. For these, sometimes you got to paint one nail. Sometimes you got to get a new ring, and it just does something you can't quite explain. The Germans have this word Grenzenbegriff. I love German words because they just take a bunch of words and attach them together. Whether it, so it doesn't matter how bulky or cumbersome it is, they just jam a bunch of words together and it works somehow. But as far as I know it's pronounced Grenzenbegriff, and as far as I understand this word, it means uh, it means something that's real, but transcends rational analysis. That's what this new wedding ring is. It's Grenzenbegriff. It's it does something. It has a power, something beautiful and moving about it to me. But it sort of moves beyond rational analysis. Yeah, there are no tangents. We carry lots of things around in our heart. Yeah, if your heart has a shelf on it, lots of things sit side by side that your mind would want to resolve. How can that sit next to that? How can that sadness sit next to that joy? How can that euphoria sit next to that anger? Yeah, but the heart has no need, has no need to reconcile these. All these things sit side by side. Yeah, so you go about your day enjoying what you enjoy, having your heart broken by what's breaking your heart. Yeah, yeah, you make room for all of it. You make room for all of it. And there are no tangents because it's your life. So when you say, ah, oh, that was a tangent, I don't know where that came from. It came from you. When you're talking with a friend and suddenly something fills you with energy and you start talking, you follow it over here and you're just like, yeah, sorry, stop apologizing for that. It was in you. Yeah, for some reason it came out. Yeah, so let's follow it. Let's see what it is. It was in there. It came out of you. Yeah, you've been carrying it around. Yeah, that was interesting to you in the moment. And there's just one you, so there's a, what feels like bits and pieces actually belong to a whole. Yeah, what can easily feel like a bunch of fragments, what was the point of that? How did that happen? Why, why, did I, why did I get trained in that, but then I'm not doing that? How come I had those experiences that have nothing to do with the thing I want to do next? Yeah, all the things that you say about how it feels like bits and pieces, but it's bits and pieces that have taken place within your life. So all those parts are actually part of a whole. Yeah, there aren't any tangents. So you see how you have two lenses. 
you get to choose. Do you want your fundamental lens to be separation and isolation? It's all just random parts. Nothing's related to anything. And then every once in a while, maybe it seems like there might be a connection. You can choose to live like that. M many people in the modern world do. It's all bits and pieces. None of it relates to anything because the fundamental lens is separation and isolation. So this person is just annoying. There's nothing else about them. They're just annoying. That's what happens when the lens is separation. That event, painful. That event, embarrassed. I hope no one brings it up. I don't ever want to talk about it again. Please don't remind me that I used to be like that. All of that is separation. It's isolation. It's bits and pieces. Please, could we deny them? Could we forget about them? Could we move on from them? That is a lens. Or you can have the mind of the Christ. You can see things through a lens of wholeness and unity. That all division, all parts, all the bits and pieces belong to a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why you went to school for that and now you're not doing it. You can choose to drag it around like a bit and piece that makes no sense. Or you can say, oh, it was all part of your life. It was all part of the interesting ride that your life has turned out to be. So what's the point? I don't know. What's the point of this episode? <laughs> Does anything relate to anything? Well, I don't know. I said it all. Came out of my life. Yeah. So it may appear like a bit of a bunch of parts. It may appear like unrelated fragments. They all form a whole. One life. One episode. So if it feels like it lurches, if it feels like there's no connective tissue, if it feels like it's just unrelated bits and pieces with no coherence, no through line, yeah, that's not what just happened. What just happened was one episode coming out of a life, sharing it with other lives, all of us together. Yeah, yeah, try this. Try this. Try repeating this. There are no tangents. Try living like this. There are no tangents. That person comes along who's incredibly annoying. Sure, you can see them through separation and isolation. Just get me away from them. And maybe you need to have strong boundaries. Maybe you need to have, like, distance. Maybe, fine, great. Or you may also, within that, I wonder what they've come to teach me. Why do they rile me up like they do? Why are they so... What is it about them? There's, what is it, over 7 billion people? How come this person gets under my skin in some way no one else does? What is it about them? You can see everything as a tangent. It has nothing to do with anything. That's just... Or you can say there are no tangents, and you can ask this person here, what have they come to teach me? This event that just thinking about it drags all the pain back up. You can see it as separation and isolation and just, I wish it didn't exist. Or there are no tangents. You can see it as, I wonder what it's come to set me free from. I wonder what it's come. To, I wonder why that happened. To, I wonder what it has to teach me. I wonder what wisdom there is to be accumulated from my experience of that event. Telling you, my friends, 
you start seeing things with this lens. <sighs> yeah. You're talking to somebody and suddenly you find yourself going on this riff, way down this rabbit hole about something and it's got all this energy and it's, you just, and then all of a sudden you stop yourself and you say to the person, I'm sorry for that tangent. Stop. Don't, don't apologize. Stop. Ask yourself, why? Why, why did that come up right now with this person here? Yeah. Yeah. Bob Dylan it. Respond to a question with a question. Follow it. Watch what happens. Oh, interesting. That's in there. Fascinating. Yes. <laughs> this has been Robcast, episode 322. The new audiobook is called Handling Your Fire, Passion, Burnout, Routines, and Resilience. You can download it at my site because, as you know, there are no tangents. Grace and peace to you, my friends, now more than ever. <laughs>